Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from both academia and industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. So I'm curious to ask you firstly, when you were a PhD student, you have been working in airborne computers for Howard Hughes aircraft. Oh, yeah, way back. And you mentioned that that inspired you. So I'm curious about this experience to do a PhD and work in an airborne computer for Howard Hughes aircraft. What kind of maybe shaped your way of thinking about computers at that time? Well, uh, I think the main thing is I had primarily been a software studied software and I, I think that's what I expected to do because that was kind of my first love. I really, uh, uh, when I first took my first computer class, I tried programming and I was hooked. That's what I wanted to do. So I took hardware classes just to as part of the requirements of UCLA, but it wasn't the thing I was mainly working on. And then what happened, I was working as a research assistant on my uh, PhD and the contract ended and I needed a job. So that's why I started working at Hughes Aircraft. And so what we did at Hughes Aircraft is that we built computers uh, that was uh, to be airborne computers. And so then um, I got to learn not only just read about how to do hardware, but actually do it ourselves. And so I found I really enjoyed it. Uh, the chance that, you know, I think two exciting things if you're going to study computer science is designing your own programming language and designing your own computer. Those are both really fun things to do. And I think designing your own computer is a little bit more practical than designing a programming language. But so it was fun and educational. And then by the time I graduated and I went to Berkeley, I wasn't really sure which I was going to do next, more hardware or more software. And uh, they really wanted somebody to do hardware. And so I happily uh, was take, took the job at Berkeley and did hardware. So first of all, I would like to thank you for all the contribution I've been doing in RISC because when I was a student, I have taken some courses in RISC and CISC and I really fall in love with assembly language, how you go to the hardware level. The kind of thought leads you to design RISC in that case, a reduced instruction set computer. Because when we started that, for example, we started 10 years ago with a PIC, we student, and we tried to understand this kind of set, there's a specific set of instruction for this hardware. But I'm curious when you start to think about risk in the design yeah so uh you know this was done it wasn't just me there was also a lot of people at berkeley but there were also uh my friend john hennessy at stanford was doing the work and then people at ibm were doing it uh, what had happened before the conventional way of designing instruction sets was to have this microcode interpreters and so you could have very uh complicated instructions and there was a way pretty economically to make it work and the question we had was, well, you could design it that way, but maybe if we didn't have such complicated instructions, we could just directly execute it directly without this microcode interpreter inside. And so if you take that perspective, then um, you'd like to have a very minimal instruction set of, of not only, uh, not a lot of instructions, but also very simple instructions. And it turned out, once you did that, it also made it much easier to pipeline those instructions. So it was kind of a win-win uh, in that, um, that you didn't have an interpreter and you could pipeline. And so that combination made it much more attractive than the microprocessors at the time. Uh, you know, like a 
the factor of four better maybe. So why was controversial? Yeah. Yeah, it was it was very controversial because um, the perspective at the time is that you know software was hard is was and still is hard to do, and one argument that was made is that the high level of the software had to go down to low level assembly language, and that was not only a difficulty uh, for building compilers, it was a difficulty for the software itself, and the the claim was. That's led to difficulties in, in uh, software designs and led to these disasters where projects took forever. So that it, it was, they thought of a higher level, a better architecture would make software projects go faster. That was pre the prevailing wisdom. And they called that high level language computer architecture, that rather than aiming for assembly language, you'd aim for these high level languages and then it would have all these benefits. So that was the prevailing uh, a school of thought of designing computers. And so this is very contrarian to that. This is saying, well, that has nothing to do, the actual language that the machines execute has nothing to do with that. It's really what the issue is, you know, because compilers work and what matters is the cost and performance and the speed that you execute. Because, you know, kind of speed is a, is a characteristic. Faster makes it easier to build software as well. So. It was contrary to the prevailing wisdom, and so that led to the, you know there would be debates at conferences with people to argue these points. And I'm curious about maybe the maybe counterintuitive th thing is that for design philosophy, because for example, we started the Harvard structure and von Neumann structures. So when it comes to the design of the architecture, how will you do that to design a structure for a computer? Well, it. Um, these days, I mean, you could, it, you're not starting from a clean slate, right? So you can look at existing designs and, and start from there. If you were starting from a clean slate, you'd start from the instruction set itself and you'd look at the operations it provides. And, the, and you know, you have to do memory transfers, you have to do uh, integer operations. Depending on the instruction set, it may have to be floating point operations. So you'd start with the instruction set architecture and kind of lay out the blocks that you have to have. And then the art is figuring out the balance of uh, the resources that you have available, the clock rate that you can run them at, and then typically how, what's the average time it takes to execute those instructions that you design. So that's kind of the, the balancing act, uh, the clock rate, the amount of resources, and how long the instructions take to execute. Mm -hmm. When it comes to maybe what's still missing, because you mentioned sometime about more law, maybe still the number of transistors is decreasing. I don't know how, how do you see this kind of advances so far? Yeah. Yeah, so it's pretty clear that uh, what Morris Law said, what Gordon Morris said in 1965 is unambiguous. He said, I, as I look forward, and you can look at a graph that he has along the scale, and every year it shows the number of transistors per chip doubling. And then he revisited it 10 years later, and he said, looking back, it actually did that. You know, it doubled every year. And he said, I think it'll keep doubling every year for a while. Eventually, it's probably going to slow down to double every two years. I just reread the paper. Now, when I say the thing that Moore uh, talked about uh, is no longer true, uh, so that Moore's law, Moore's prediction, which was true for an amazing 50 years, it is not accurate anymore, uh, so it, the, it's the end of Moore's Law, then 
so many people have embraced the uh, bragged about Moore's law is they trip that mean is that semiconductors will not get any better at all. They're frozen in time. So those are those are not, that's not the opposite. Doubling every two years, it no longer being true, isn't the same as there's no progress. But that's widely how it's interpreted, and that's why people get mad about it. You can have arguments now about whether Moore's law is still correct, even though it's factually, you could look back, if you look back six years, if it, if it doubled every two years, then it should be that the number of transistors per chip is eight times what it was six years ago. That would be Moore's law, and that's not true. Now, so what's happening now is we're slowing down, and each generation is getting more expensive. The, the, both the mass costs are going way up and the process wafer costs are going way up because it's very expensive as we get into these very uh, narrow line widths. And the gains that you get per generation are getting smaller, and the, the generations are getting a little farther apart. So we're seeing kind of this plateauing of the benefits uh, where things are getting, you know, m minorly more expensive and a small amount better. Um, but that doesn't mean it's over. It just means it's slowed way down from what we were used to. The problem is, certainly for the software industry, they were used to performance doubling every, say, 18 months. And so they could keep adding features and the processors would make their software run fast enough. Um, so they, some of them are continuing assuming that's true, even though the hardware is not going to do that. So the choices are uh, uh, either they have to make software a lot more efficient to get, make it faster, or we'll have to do different types of computer architectures than we've done in the past. Do you imagine what kind of other architecture you think maybe could be explored in that case? Yeah, so what the conventional wisdom is that while we can't make a general, nobody has an idea that shows a general purpose microprocessor be a lot better than the current ones. You know, the von Neumann, so-called von Neumann design and lots of caches and lots of cores and out-of-order execution. Those ideas are pretty powerful and no one's, for general purpose computing, has come up with a better model yet. However, for special purpose areas, uh, what that you can have big gains. And the one that I mentioned in, in the introduction for machine learning is an area where they could have very special purpose hardware that can run that a lot better than a standard CPU. Um, and so that hardware, like the, they're called the tensor processing units or TPUs. TPUs uh, can't run a lot of other software well, but it can run machine learning, you know, at least a factor of 10 better than CPUs can run them. Uh, so that's an example of what the future probably looks like, is areas that have accelerators, and these accelerators only do that one thing really well, and we'll probably have a collection of those accelerators, is, pro is the only thing we know now uh, to make progress over the next five or ten years. Wait, I don't know if you can comment about Doju by Tesla AI Day, the, in Tesla AI Day when they announced about the Doju project. I just saw, I just saw, um, you know, the announcement. So, it, uh, you know, I own a Tesla car. I've owned this. I'm on, I'm on my second Tesla car that I've owned. So I'm a big fan of Elon Musk, and his, he's a visionary. But he always uh, overpromises what he can do by the time he can do it. So the announcement that was done today, they haven't actually assembled the whole computer. They just they got one section of it working, and they made the announcement. 
and they ex said how good it would be when we finished building it and putting it all together and how great it's going to be. But, uh, you know, it's an interesting design. Uh, uh, it can, it can, it's hard to tell just from the description how good it is. Uh, one of the things uh, that, you know, if you use my textbooks, you can know how important benchmarks are. So a few years ago, there were no benchmarks in machine learning. Uh, so I and my friends got involved in starting that effort. And it's, it's really taken off. It's called MLPERF. It's a very popular benchmark. So one of the reasons we started it was exactly for situations like this. Somebody makes a claim. They've got this great new architecture. Look how good it is. Look at all these cool features. Well, okay, run the benchmarks and let's see what kind of number you get. And that, that's been the way in computer architecture we've settled these debates. If you run the benchmarks and yours is a lot better numbers than our numbers, then, you know, we kind of tip our hat, congratulations, and that's great. If it's just, you know, we make all these claims uh, and without running the benchmarks, it's hard to take it uh, very seriously. For right now, look, oh, this looks interesting, seems promising, but until you run standard benchmarks, we don't know how, really how to compare to see how interesting it is. That's a good point. Maybe I'm going to ask you, as in design philosophy, what kind of question do you think based on the what you mentioned, what kind of important question you should consider in that case? Maybe in the design and the performance, what's really critical? Well, well I think for computers, I mean, it's all kind of hasn't changed, right? What's the cost performance? Uh, I would say based on my, uh, now that I've been at, uh, working at Google for several years, from a Google perspective, from the data center perspective, the cost is not the purchase price of the chip. It's not the performance per purchase type of They refer to it as the cost for total cost of ownership. So what that means is the cost of buying the chip, or if you make it yourself, the cost of making it yourself or buying it yourself. That's what's called the capital expenditure. But then there's the operational expenditure. So for as long the lifetime of that chip, how long does it last? You know, three, four, five, six years, some number like that. How much power does it draw? Uh, it, it is it's mostly power, but what are the, the co operational costs? So what you want to minimize or maximize is the performance divided by the cost, the total cost of ownership cost. And so if you're factoring the total cost of ownership, then you care more about energy efficiency, for example, and what is the how what's the peak power that you have to provision the so-called thermal design power. So the TDP, as well as the average power usage, matters over the lifetime of the chip, not just its purchase price. I don't know if, I, if you can imagine it would be the area that maybe should be considered to push the capabilities of the, for example, risk architecture, or maybe to have a fast computer. What can be the area you think we have to push for? Well, yeah, I would say, yeah, I'd say for the risk architecture, I think what's kind of happened is uh, we've kind of stabilized on what we think instruction sets, uh, what are the best ideas instruction sets. You know, and there's pretty wide consensus about what uh, are the features of a good instruction set. And so, and I don't think they've changed a lot in the last uh, 20, maybe 15, 10, 10, 15 years. I think that there's, general consensus of what are good things to do in an instruction set design. So as a result of that, about 10 years ago at Berkeley, 
uh, as part of the research projects, some of the faculty and students I was working with said, well, let's, rather than try and use these old uh, risk architectures from the 1980s, which is when I was working on it, let's do it ourselves. Let's do a brand new clean state risk construction set that'll be a better foundation for us to do our research. So because uh, we had done at Berkeley four generations of risk architectures in the 1980s, they called this one risk five. And so we were using it ourselves happily, um, and then people started at other places started using it. And what we realized about five years ago is there was a demand for an open architecture, not just for research, which is what we did, or for teaching, which is what we did it, but for actual production use. So starting in um, about five years ago, we helped found, a, we looked at the success of the open source software projects and followed their lead. So we found, we uh, created a foundation and this foundation's job is to popularize RISC-V and to enhance RISC-V. The name of that foundation today is RISC-V International. And as of today, I just saw the data. There's 2,000 individuals who are in it. There's 200 corporations and about 100 universities that are all participating in RISC-V. And those 200 uh, corporations, interestingly, are almost evenly spread in Asia, North America, and Europe. There's kind of like one-third, approximately one-third in each area. So it's a worldwide uh, phenomenon. Uh, uh, um, one of the authors of the RISC-V architecture and I, Andrew Waterman, and I have wrote a book about it. And uh, there's, there's a book available uh, to buy in English, but we've also got free translations in Chinese, Japanese, I think Spanish, in Portuguese, I think. Uh, so if people, your listeners are uh, in other parts of the world and want to download a free book, you can go to risk, I think it's riskbook.com and you'll see the links to the various uh, versions. Um, but that'll, that's a good way to, if, you, if you're interested in what the RISC-V instructor set looks like. And so the argument isn't so much that RISC-V is a fantastic instruction set, although I think it is. I think it is really a good instruction set. The big deal is that it's an open instruction set, and that's, that's a new and powerful idea. So this means, and once you unlock the instruction set, that means anybody in the world can build processors to that instruction set. Conventionally, you know, historically, instruction sets are always proprietary, so somebody owned that, and then they controlled who could build the processors. So either they would stop you from building it, or you had to get a license from them. And so then, um, that, that's, you know, there's a business advantages to that, but it kind of stifles innovation because nobody can try things. So now with RISC-V, you can, anybody with a great idea can get, you know, a working hardware software stack and add whatever thing they want to investigate as part of that RISC-V. And you have, you know, a big software stack and you have open source design. So there's implementations written in uh, System Verilog or other languages that you can download it and modify to put in the value, you know, whatever features you want. So this is a very uh, exciting time uh, in, in computer architecture because of the openness and the experimentation. You can do. Actually, I'm curious to ask you that point because I think you are one of professor maybe in academia, you have impact outside, yeah, in real world application and many people talk about that. For you, why didn't you have this kind of take the opportunity to go and establish your company? I, I read that you resist yeah, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I'd say, yeah, why did I do a startup? Uh, I'd say I, 
I had some time, you know, I was fortunate to get a job offer at Berkeley uh, before I had finished my dissertation. So I, I, it's not that unusual. I'd say, well, uh, I applied in June, but I'm not going to finish my PhD until December. So I'll start in January. But I had some time to think while I was trying to finish my PhD about what I cared about, what I wanted to do. And I read some books about uh, people's reflecting on their careers and what they liked. And when I got out of one of those books, actually, <laughs> I have the book right here. I'll show you. It's, uh, <laughs> the, the book is called Working here. And in, uh, you know, it's obviously a book that must be almost 50 years old because I read it when I finished my dissertation. Is, uh, and what I got out of that book was that people who worked with people uh, felt really good about their careers when they look back. I, I am now at the position where I look back at my career. And so this included you know, educators or uh, ministers or people who worked with people who felt very good about it. And the people who did technological things, even they, it was it, more they cared about not so much the technological things as uh, the people they worked with, right? And, and now for the people who built things that lasted a long time, like if you worked in the Golden Gate Bridge or the Empire State Building, think physical structures that last a long time, you could look back and feel good about it. But the technological things tend to be, uh, you know, come and go, they, 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 they didn't stay. So that could be somewhat unsatisfactory. So I kind of went into, uh, you know, the next phase of my career thinking it was going to be the people I worked with that, that mattered. So to me, it was uh, trying to be happy and uh, trying to uh, shape people's lives was what I, was my goal. So I had this, you know, kind of little story when people said, well, why don't you start a company? It's like, well, that's not, you know, I, it's really hard to start a company. I'm trying, aiming for personal happiness and trying to shape people's lives. So startups weren't really part of what I was planning to do. Now, I think as I look back, it would have been okay. I could have taken a two-year leave of absence and done a startup company. That would have been, that would have been fine as part of a career. I, I didn't need to be, need to be so uh, strict about my vision. About, I'm a professor. I'm not going to... I have to be a professor. It would have been fine if I'd taken a couple of years off and tried to start up. Now, most startups don't make it. 90% of the startups don't make it. So just because I tried doesn't mean I'd be successful. But uh, I think it, could, it would have been okay. But, but, you know, I'm very happy how my career turned out and the choices. And it was one of the things that, uh, you know, I like telling stories that kind of, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago or so or 20 years ago is a person who I greatly respected. He'd been the dean of the college is retiring. And he told me, uh, you know, Dave, as I reflect back on things, the things that really matter in my career is the people I've worked with, not, not the things. And I thought, I knew that. <laughs> I, got, I got that from this book, right? I knew that going in, right? So he confirmed the same thing. And of course, now that I'm, you know, uh, uh, let's see, I got my PhD in 1976, so I guess it's 45 years later. 45 years later, yep, it's the people you work with that are the things that are really the most important thing. <laughs> so that's, that's a long story about why I didn't do a startup. Uh, I think in, in retrospect, now, it would have been okay. It, it would have been bad if I'd done a startup and left academia. That would have been really bad. Uh, and in fact, when Hennessy did his um, startup at MIPS, I you know, was there rooting for him to return. You know, you know even though MIPS and I was consulting with Sun Microsystems and Spark, even though they're rivals, I knew 
John was a tremendous professor and I, you know, kept whispering in his ear that, you know, as exciting as MIPS is, you know, you're going to, you're going to want to go back to Stanford uh, because that's best for you long term. And thank God, you know, he didn't stay at MIPS because, you know, he became president of Stanford. But, you know, I think the best president Stanford's ever had. And so it was really important for him to go back. Thanks for sharing the story. Maybe you can go for the audience a question because we have a few questions. The first one, when, when do you think we will move beyond uh, new managed uh, architecture? Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. I was actually uh, got to uh, uh, Scientific American for its 150th anniversary issue, which was in 1995, asked me to write an article about the future about what microprocessors will look like in the future. And so I said, I'm going to predict for 2020. And what I said, and looking at a lot, a lot of these predictions, is what people do when they write these predictions is try to be entertaining, I think. And they say, look, this is going to be so fantastic in the future. It's, it's going to be completely different. It's going to have all these really interesting ideas in them. So I said, I'm going to boldly predict that that's not going to be true. I said, I think the microprocessors of 2020 are going to be very familiar to the, micro, the people of 1995. Um, and I was right. right? It's, things haven't changed dramatically. The, I think the so-called von Neumann architecture, this idea you have a program counter and instructions, this is a pretty, and then there's, and you can modify soft, software's modifiable. It's a very powerful idea. And there's a reason why things continue to look like that. Uh, so I don't, I, I don't see something radical coming on, at least for the next decade or so. I would think like the RISC-V work that we're working on, uh, I think RISC-V is going to be popular for 10 or 20 years at, at least. Uh, I don't see something uh, really changing dramatically. Now we can add accelerators, right? So if that's like running all the user interface stuff, a lot of software. But now special purpose accelerators that do things very differently, like the TPU has the systolic arrays. Now, doing something very novel for a piece of the program, that makes a lot of sense, but you know, completely rejecting the, the von Neumann architecture, you can't find any remnants of it. Um, that it completely disappears. I, I'll be very surprised if that mm. happens. I also the question add about, about neuromorphic seems promising, given how deep learning is working. I know there aren't great ways to train a spiking neural nets, Bit, but we can just convert ANN uh, to spiking neural nets in the meantime to run neuromorphic uh, hardware. Yeah, so neuro neuromorphic, I think, in general means uh, inspired by the brain. And so that's just a, the, uh, that certainly is driving the ML community. They are inspired by how the brain works. Now, these spiking neural networks, uh, it's like uh, computer architecture, right? Uh, the, there are benchmarks in the ML community. They didn't used to have them, but they, they, they did adopt them, say, 10 or 15 years ago, and there are these competitions. Who, who can recognize the images the best? Who can translate, do the translations the best? And so far, the people who are advocates of spiking neural networks have not submitted uh, models to these competitions. Because these competitions aren't are kind of practical, right? They're things that you can imagine people like. I would like something they could identify what my camera sees, or I want, I want these translations to be high quality. So there, anybody can enter these with any idea. And in fact, exactly what happened nine years ago is uh, for vision is 
this deep, somebody tried a deep learning model, Jeff Hinton and his students submitted to the standard competition a deep learning model and they won and made a dramatic improvement in um, the quality score that first year. And that first year, they were the only one who tried that idea. And the second year, there was maybe 10 entries that were uh, these deep neural network ones and, the, and you know, 50 that were conventional. And two years later, 100% were deep learning. So that field completely turned to embrace the deep neural networking model because of success. So spiking neural networks are a really great idea. The path is clear. Enter one of these competitions, do one of these challenges better than everybody else, and the field could change, right? But so far, been, they haven't um, demonstrated any, I, I, I'm not aware of any examples where spiking neural network has done well on any of these competitions. So it is a way to explore how the brain works. You know, we'll, we'll do a spiking neural network because the brain probably does it that way. To understand the brain, that, that seems fine, but in terms of a practical alternative to deep neural networks, so far the, the proof's in the pudding and they, they don't have the proof. Yeah, and we have also another question, I think, to God Day. Captain, what do you think about Bostronic brains? Yeah, I don't know anything about that, sorry. <laughs> and uh, also another question, when and if we can see RISC-V in consumer devices running complex operating system like one based on Linux? That's already happening today. Uh, that, what the, kind of the problem for the uh, RISC-V International is because the RISC-V is most popular in embedded devices, uh, nobody is, uh, you can buy the devices and you don't know what's inside. <laughs> there's no bragging about that we're using RISC-V, but there's lots of products that are already using RISC-V. Uh, the two big, two public examples are every Western digital disk drive, so that's like a billion a year has RISC-V processors in them. And every NVIDIA GPU has RISC-V processors in them. Uh, there's watches that have RISC-V processors in them. Uh, there's uh, cell phones with RISC-V, you know. So we don't have a good way of, re we haven't figured out how to advertise that, but there's, there's our products today. And going forward, especially in the embedded space, RISC-V is very popular. So I would expect a lot of things that you use will have RISC-V.